I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you Josh, like. What a stop! Josh from Ben! Oh! Oh! I mean, that sort of stuff, we're, it, it's been, we're, be, we're bigger than that. That interview was just like the performance, flat. No. What, what do you want him to do? Just fall at Gabriel's feet crying? I mean, well, he's... Say something. We, we were doing what we'd done for 20 years, relaxing a nervous studio guest in the same way that you would in, in these conditions, um, and thought no more of it. Fire it up, fire it up. When we finally turn it over, make a beeline towards the boulder. Yes, it is the Off The Wall football podcast, sometimes on a Thursday. Today it's on a Friday because we just wanted to wait an extra few hours after the news that broke last night. Kevin Kilban normally presents the pod, but you are at home today. Kevin, you're back in Manchester. How are you? I'm very good, Dave. All's very good. Thanks, yeah. Not bad at all. Bit of a, a shock when I, when I heard it, I have to say that, regardless of what the circumstances are around Leicester at the moment. Yeah, I was commentating on the Tottenham-Ghent game last night and the uh, producer sent the news through to me mid-commentary. I couldn't quite believe it and yet the more I think about it, despite some of the incredulity I'm seeing on Twitter, they're probably going to get relegated if they have him as the manager. Um, I I still wouldn't put that, I still wouldn't necessarily say that, I wouldn't. they're, obviously, they're in an awkward position now. They've, it's got to the stage where the owners think they've got to act. From what I've read this morning, it looks as though discussions had between uh, the owners of the club, between uh, the directors at the club, between the coaching staff, between the players. And the message seemed to be, certainly from the playing staff, it seemed to be that they didn't have uh, Ranieri or um, the players didn't back Ranieri. That's what it seemed to me. And when you have these conversations... I think almost as if you're giving people power or you're giving people the power to make these decisions that don't necessarily need to make these decisions. That is the thing. And ultimately, the players have got to take a lot of blame within this. I do, I do feel that. Watching them the other night, particularly in the first half, watching them over the last few weeks, clearly those players are not playing with the same level of yeah. tempo, intensity. The attitude isn't what it was. Wes Morgan, I think I tweeted on Wednesday, just seems to be getting to everything a fraction later than he was this time last season. So it would, on looking at them, appear to be the case that it is down to the players. But the problem is you can't change the players. Totally. And and that's what they're looking for with the owners to do this. We've seen it before. They get that little bit of a spark and they get that little bit of a rebound straight away when, when the manager comes in. I'm totally with you there on Wes Morgan. The other night, diving in for that penalty. And last season, the the goals wouldn't have been conceded the way that they're conceding the goals this season. Sloppy goal. And I know they, they never scored the penalty, but it was. I'm with you. It's just almost as if everything's just that that little bit slower now this season. It's not the reaction times are a little bit slower. And but that was the case throughout that game of the night. I mean, they got away with a two-one defeat of the night because Sevilla absolutely battered them. Leicester offered nothing going forward, and then. They sat in, and it looks a decent result on the face of it, considering how the how the game panned out. So, it's not necessarily that severe again. That was almost as if it was the owners had that had the opportunity then to speak to personnel, speak to players, speak to coaching staff, speak to perhaps people that's on the 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 staff around the coaching staff as well. And I think that conversation has been had, and they've had to think long and hard. And what have they done? They've given it twenty four hours or so, and they've come to that come to that decision, but. You can't get away from the fact that it does seem incredibly harsh. If you go back to your original point there where you said it looks as though if Ranieri stays on, they would, they would get relegated. I still feel they've got enough, but 
the club felt that. The club felt that they, they could not, under any circumstances, get relegated. And that is ultimately why he's had to go. And it's something else that we talk about, Dave, and I spoke about it in recent weeks. The wage bill at Leicester has gone through the roof. I would probably say seven, eight, ten times what it was this time two years ago, the wage bill. So you know full well how that goes. The the owners now are making business decisions for the club going forward, and that ultimately is the business decision of the club. It's, there's no sentiment involved. It's get him out. We need a new manager to come in that's going to guarantee our Premier League safety, and that is the only thing that's in their mind. Yeah, despite the fact that they've won the Premier League and have had a run in Europe, it, it would appear at board level that they feel they just cannot afford to get relegated. Financially, they still are not in a position where they could handle being relegated because of all the money that's going out in wages. Totally, totally. That's the way it would be. They'd still get parachute payments and they'd still obviously get the Champions League money from this season for getting out of the group stage. So there'll be a lot of money coming in over the next few years. But the money coming in could not sustain that wage bill over over the next five or six years. I'm convinced of that. So ultimately, that that is why they've had to make that decision. We shouldn't be surprised. The exact same thing has happened although on a slightly larger scale and slightly different circumstances to Jose Mourinho a year previous because he has gone into the new season as defending Premier League champion and he was gone by December, two months before Claudio Ranieri. It doesn't really matter what you've done in the previous season or even in the previous six months. If the, man, if the board and the owners think you're going to go down, it just appears that they don't really have a choice. They couldn't just meander their way through the next five or six games and then sack Ranieri when you're four or five points adrift of safety, whereas now they're a point above the drop zone. They're still, they still have their destiny in their own hands. Yeah, they feel as they, they feel as though they've taken decisive action. They, they don't want it to get to that stage. So that is, yeah, that's why they have done that. But you look at Chelsea last season and their title defence, or David. They, you, you never felt. I know that they were in a precarious position themselves, Chelsea. But you, you, I think everybody realistically would have thought in the head, yes, Chelsea have seriously underachieved this season. Chelsea, uh, whatever happened there between the players and, and, and Mourinho, that's uh, that's happened. And the, and obviously they got rid. And maybe some might say rightly so. I don't know. But the run, the, the Leicester situation, Leicester situation is very different because Leicester didn't. Leicester went from being. Average Premier League players, I suppose you said, to being Premier League champions, that was be- above and beyond all expectations. So, I, I think they are where they are. I think that's the level that they were probably always that they were always at. And last season was just just I, I, I don't think anyone can explain what happened last season. It was just one of those freak things. That's that's what I feel with it. But it, 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 I'm just I, I go back to the point on that one with maybe with the decisive action that they've taken. They feel as though by doing this that. They'll get immediate reaction. I'm going to be interested to see what they do. It looks as though Craig Shakespeare is going to go in, Dave. Now, it, that seems Tell to us me, about him. Um, a lot of our listeners wouldn't have heard of him. Yeah, I, I worked with him at Hull City with Nigel Pearson as well. Um, very good coach, I have to say that. In worked with Nigel Pearson for a long time. It was quite surprising that he actually stayed in at, at Leicester when Nigel Pearson left last season. Him, alongside Steve Walsh, were up at, uh, were up at Hull City when Nigel had a season or 18 months up there. So that's a surprise. But if he gets the job, then they've obviously had dialogue with him, the owners, to say, look, what's happening? We trust you. You've been in under our ownership here at the club. Um, what 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 has gone wrong? What's gone wrong in the training ground? What's gone wrong in the dressing room? What's going wrong in game preparation? So he's obviously had to give his ideas across or give his um, thoughts across to the board. And that, if they're given the job, 
it suggests to me that what he has said to them wouldn't necessarily have been a positive thing about Ranieri. So what does this do to the legacy of last season? How damaging is it to what they achieved last season? How damaging is it to Claudio Ranieri's legacy at Leicester City? What does it do to the gloss of what happened a year ago? Realistically, I I don't think any Leicester fan. Uh, I don't think it, I don't think it affects Leicester. The, the, certainly from the supporters' point of view, I think they they realise themselves what what they did last season and what they achieved. I don't think it affects Claudio Ranieri's legacy. Claudio Ranieri comes to the Premier League as a failed international coach, losing to the Faroe Islands, I think it was, for, with Greece. So his his stock rose immeasurably just by just by taking the job at Leicester last season and what he achieved. So. I don't necessarily think that his reputation has been has been tarnished in any way. I I, I think if anything, it probably suggests to me that he he probably he's probably going to go on from here and if he wants another job and he'll get a, a, another good job somewhere. I'm sure he, he could go back to Italy now with what he achieved last season and and get one of the better sides over in Italy because he, his his reputation has always been high since he, since he first came to the Premier League. He's managed some of the better clubs in Italy as well and and across Europe. So don't necessarily see that the only thing from this season the only the, the only one i could point to whose reputation has been damaged is the players because as we spoke about earlier on the 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 standard that they've been producing this season the performances have been awful they haven't been able to replicate anywhere near what they've done last season they haven't been able to put any sort of structure in place as a team you understand sometimes but on the pitch when the game's going wrong for you can you revert back to type? Can you revert back to what you were actually doing last season to get the results? Even in those tight games when they weren't necessarily open and expansive, they were still able to to to, to create chances and open sides up and, and at the other end, stop sides scoring against them. They can't do that now, Dave. So the only one who I, who I see his reputation has been um, tarnished is the players. Riyad Mahrez, is one of those, obviously, player of the year last year being linked with some of the biggest clubs in the world this time last year, or certainly at the end of last season. Watching him on Wednesday, watching him over the last few weeks, his stock has dropped dramatically. You'd wonder, would yeah. there be an awful lot of the clubs that were in the market for him last summer, would they be turned off by what they've seen? Has he yeah, cost probably. himself his big money move? Um, possibly, yes. And I would I would have to say yes. In answer to that question, yeah, I would say he has. Because I think sometimes when... What he did last season, of course, he was playing in a team that was full of confidence, that a team that was on that huge high. I would look at it the other way now, that, look, let's see what you can do now when, you t- when your team's up against it, when your team's struggling. Let's see you put a shift in for the team. Let's see you create something for a team when you need to produce that special moment when we need a goal from you or we need, we need you to create something. I've not, seen it. I've not seen it regularly this season at all. The other night against Sevilla when they scored, when they, got the, when they came back to 2-1, it's almost as if Morris came to life then. Morris was taking the ball. He was he was travelling with the ball. He looked like he was full of confidence. But that was only in a small, maybe, what, 10-minute window, five to 10-minute window throughout that game. That's when he maybe he started to see what Morris was all about. So, yeah, he, he would be another one, Dave, whose stock would have certainly gone down, definitely. You look at the Vardys, you look at the Morgans, you look at a lot of players. Drinkwater would be another one. There's a lot of players in that uh, Leicester dressing room who... Many would look at who who you would have thought of last season. Who would have gone? Yeah, we're going to get him. We'll take him. He'll do a great job for us. And now I would have thought that the the managers, the coaches, the people who's head of recruitment will be looking at those Leicester players a lot differently in relation to signings. Yeah. 
Okay, well, that's the Claudio Ranieri situation on a human level. Very sad for him as well. He was great to have around in the Premier League. The other story from last night, Tottenham going out of the Europa League to Ghent. Going forward, they were pretty decent at times, but the big story from the game was Deli Ali, Kevin. I don't know, have you seen yeah. his tackle on have, yes, Diego? I have, seen, I have seen it. Every time we looked at it, myself and Kenny Cunningham last night, it got worse with every angle that yeah. we looked at. One of the worst challenges that I've seen this season yeah, Mauricio Pochettino has talked in the past about that edge that he has to his game, the type of an edge that you wouldn't necessarily want to take away from the player. But this, this is crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm probably with Pochettino to that extent. Yes, you don't want that edge to to be gone. He's he he's plays on the on the edge, and I think he's got the best out of himself in in doing that. But that was that was a reckless. It, you know what, Dave? It was a disgraceful challenge. You can't get away from that now. I, I would have played against a lot of defenders maybe during my time who would have been hard on me. And you would have had to give a little bit back to them as well. And you would have known that you've got to stand up to, to the physicality of a game. But I would never intentionally have gone out and gone right over the top. And that's one of those tackles, Dave, when you know immediately you've gone over the top, that is career-threatening. You, you're, you're, you could damage a fellow pros uh, or, or, yeah, fellow professional, or you could cost him his career. And that is certainly something that has got to be stamped out. That That's the sort of tackle, Dave, that fortunately the lad wasn't injured. Fortunately, the lad hasn't got hasn't got a severe injury off the back of that. If it, if it was, um, or even if, if not, just just the, just the severity on the challenge, mm. I, I, they're five-match bans, ten-match bans. You know, I was going to ask you, you, you know, do you think this merits more than the three matches? There was, there was a wound on his leg that seeped right through the sock probably for the next half an hour, and he did come off eventually, but as you say, the, the, the old adage, if that leg is planted, it snapped in half. Well, Dave, if, if he had snapped his leg, then, you know, if, if, if he comes off and he's and he snapped his leg and, you know, it's, it, it, it looks awful, because we have seen it, then there's an outcry. It's, oh, he deserves a 10, 15 match ban. Why, why, did, why does it take the, the injury to, to, make, to make the authorities ban a player? That should go in play straight away because that that would stamp that sort of tackle out. You know, we Dave, you and I go and watch lots of games. We love the physical nature of games. We love watching a game when it's got a little bit of physicality in it. When 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 there's players up against it, you know, when you're watching someone like Diego Costa who's playing on the edge. I've never seen Diego Costa do like gone over the top and really gone like knee high on a player. Look to you know look to break somebody's leg or. Or, or going in, in hard enough where you know he's going to actually damage someone or could damage someone's career. I suppose so we should say, like, we're, we're not saying that Deli Ali intentionally went in to that challenge with a view to injuring that player. No. But no, it was but, it was beyond reckless. Cut, That's Dave, the point. Exactly. I, I, I th- and you know, Dave, as well as I do, and, 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 anyone can, and anyone can relate to this that's played the game at any level. We all get frustrated on a football pitch, whether it's five aside, whether it's eleven aside, and sometimes you're a little bit off, and you go and you go into you go into to, to make a tackle. You're a little bit late. Someone's left a leg in. Everybody can relate to that on some level, but when you're following through with that tackle, I think sometimes you, you can stop yourself. You can actually because I've seen many players going in for these challenges where you can you can you know go in with the ball and you're going low on it. As soon as you're going over the top of a ball like that, like he did last night. That's that's when it can lead to serious injury. And I said, any anyone at any level can relate to that. And everybody knows that when 
when you're going in for one of those tackles with someone who's prepared to go over the top of the ball, you can see and you, you're almost expecting it. So you kind of, you don't want to plant your leg. You're almost trying to ride it and jump out of the way of it because you know the severity of an injury that could come your way. So, um, no, that, 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 that's more than a three-match ban, Dev. And I, I'd like to actually see UA for, uh, give him, give him um, a sufficient punishment for, for that challenge, yeah. Your thoughts overall on Tottenham, the culmination of a wretched European campaign. They've gone out of two competitions in the space of three months. One win from four games at Wembley and a yeah. bang average European side against which Pochettino pretty much played his best eleven in both legs. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing when you see them in, in the Premier League on on occasions this season, I've watched them thinking these look the the real deal, and as it as it did last season at times as well, and and they fell short. So why can't they get it right at Wembley? They're going to have to get it right for next season because of course they'll be there for, for the whole of the season in the Premier League too. And last night, it, 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 David, you, obviously you're commentating in it. I wasn't listening to your commentary, so I couldn't even give you any opinion as to whether it was good or bad. I'm I'm, I'm convinced it would have been right up there with the best again, <laughs> but. Um, but it was a set piece, Dave. The, the goal they conceded from the corner, shocking. Like you don't you don't see Tottenham conceding goals like that. And but even at the second goal as well, where Eric Dyer just inexplicably decides to step up instead of just going with the runner, there was there wouldn't yeah. even have been danger had he just followed the runner. The ball would have ended would, at ended up at Dyer's feet. You know, I've got a problem with Eric Dyer playing centre half, Dave. Um, at the weekend, albeit against a poor side against Fulham, don't get me wrong. But when they get that partnership back in the side of, you know, when they get Fatong and when they get Alderweireld and they get everyone around them, when they, when they, when when Dyer's playing in the side, I don't think he's got whether he's playing as a holding midfielder. He plays a holding midfielder. He's actually good on the ball and he's good at actually build-up play. He pulls over to the right and left back positions when the fullbacks get forward. He's he's okay with that. But I don't think he's clever enough with runners off him. And when he plays centre-half or whether he plays as a holding midfielder, players run off him too too readily and too freely. And he gets himself in that position where he wants to step. He wants to step up and play players offside. And whether or not he doesn't have real belief in his pace, but if he doesn't have real belief in his pace, what he does, he should give himself an extra yard and drop and try and replay better. He doesn't He doesn't fill me with confidence when I see him playing in, in either of those positions when the onus is on him to, to really go and defend and see and see different situations through. So that's Tottenham and Deli Alley. Um, I I guess we should probably m- reference that small matter of City Monaco Tuesday night, Kevin. What a game that was. Um, <clears throat> personally, haven't commentated on a game like that for quite some time. You've had three days now to reflect on it. I know you've been talking about it and off the ball on our football show over the last day or two, but what are your thoughts a few days out? Yeah, well, I know these games come round to you quite regularly, Dave, with your commentary, but I have never commentated on a game like that. That was the most exciting game that I've ever done from an attacking point of view. We, we could tear apart the defensive side of, of both sides and how, how bad they actually were, but if, you, if, if, if anyone's going to watch games of football when, when the kid's growing up and... You know, if you go into your first Champions League games, or if you're watching first games on TV, if that's the game that you watch as a kid growing up, then that is the ultimate dream because that is the one that kind of sucks you in and you you're captivated with football for the rest of your life because that was just it was sensational in so many different ways. It had it had absolutely everything in the in the match, and uh, it was it was a it was a pleasure to be alongside you that night, Dave. I have to say that. Yeah, it was great fun. Um, I. I guess maybe when you reflect on it a little more maturely and the buzz has worn off, you, you have to wonder whether 
this sort of a situation defensively at Manchester City is sustainable? If they could ever win something, being this porous? Yeah, I, I can't see them getting anywhere near the Champions League this season playing like that because Monaco were very good. They, I, I'm still, I'm, I was still a bit surprised even coming away from the game that Monaco actually lost the match because Monaco looked better defensively throughout. I, I thought, and it was only when they went three two up that they just went a little bit negative and they went a little bit on the back foot a little bit and allowed pressure to be built. Maybe uh, City got the equaliser, so they, they were able then to go forward. Of course, missing the penalty as well for, for Monaco probably didn't help them. But I just thought, they were, I was looking at them thinking, wow, this team here, I mean, they could cause serious problems. And of course, the tie's not over. But I do think City, City will probably have enough just to get through with that two-goal lead going over there to Monaco. But for the longevity, for longevity no, I can't see City being able to sustain challenges, but playing so open and being being like that, particularly with the with the players that they've got. If they're going to play like that, which Guardiola probably will, and he'll continue to try to play like that, make it exciting, they've got to get different defenders in. I would probably say three of that back four wouldn't necessarily start. A goalkeeper, a holding midfielder. You're looking at five, five players out of those six that probably aren't good enough to play at, at the level that City are expecting from them, Champions League level to go and win champion, uh, winning the Champions League. So City you're looking at three hundred million changes, three hundred million this summer minimum. If he's like he needs two fullbacks and a central defender, I take yeah. it the the member of the back four that you would keep is John Stones, provided that he had a a fully fit Vidic slash Terry slash company type defender alongside him. Yeah, he's, I mean, Dave, let's be honest, he's far from the finished article. Um, he isn't the quickest, so I think he needs someone with probably pace alongside him that's, a, that's perhaps got a little bit more, more authority. Who would suit but, him if you had a name and you had an open checkbook? There aren't many I, out there anymore. I don't know. Well, Dave, if you, if you said to me, uh, Dave, I'll tell you what it was. We, we were on the plane coming back, didn't we? We come back, so we, we met Richard, Richard Dunn on the plane coming back into Dublin. And Richard, and Richard Dunn saying that, he couldn't think of anyone in Europe that could play in that back four for City. He couldn't think of any any centre half that would sign for them, thinking we're not going to concede. It, it's it's almost as if you've got to sign a player that's probably quick, that's able to maybe read situations. There's no one off the top of my head. And who's the top defenders in Europe? Top of the head, you're thinking Benucci. You're thinking. Um, perhaps uh, Boateng or, or someone like that. But those players sitting in that back four would still struggle because certainly Benucci, Benucci doesn't have the pace. He needs to play in a back four or a back three quite narrow, quite tight, not necessarily going to be open and expansive. So any defender that you can think of in your head, playing how City play and the midfield, probably with Yaya Torre as well, that sat in front of them, no, they're not. They're just. There's probably going to be nobody throughout Europe, regardless of what fee you pay, that will be able to come in and do a great job in that in that back four. So I do feel as though that probably Guardiola might have to modify things ever so slightly because you say they're 300 million. Is he going to be able to get that many players in? If he if he if you say yeah, I'll give you 300 million. Go and sign two fullbacks. Go and sign a goalkeeper. Go and sign a centre half. That takes a lot of work to get those players in, and it might take two transfer windows, even three transfer windows, to get to get the personnel in. So there's there's so many things that can go wrong when you when you when you're actually saying in your head he needs more players to come in. So this is where Guardiola's uh, um, problems stem from, I suppose. If you're up against a mobile team such as Monaco, maybe even more so a Paris Saint-Germain, for example, where they have seven yeah. or eight guys that can really get around the pitch and can 
adapt to difficult situations and get themselves out of it by virtue of their mobility. What is the reward for playing the way Guardiola wants Manchester City to play? What's the best case scenario when Caballero or Bravo starts passing the ball and getting it back from his back four? What's he hoping to achieve? Well, it, 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 it happened only on the, on a couple of occasions throughout the first half, Dave. I said, if he goes to either centre-half, the way that Monaco set up, and you mentioned they were the pace, they were so pacey throughout that team. They were one of the quickest sides that I've seen. You mentioned PSG. They'd be right up there with them for, for the pace that they've got inside. But when Caballero kicks the ball out or, or, or plays it to one of the centre-halves that have split, the only option you felt the other night was to go back to Caballero. So Caballero's pass then, he's either got to hit Yaya Torre centrally or on a couple of occasions, he actually bypassed Yaya Torre, who maybe made a bit of an angle, and he hit Aguero straight to the middle because how they were set up on a press, it was able then to get through to Aguero. But Monaco were quickly figuring that out, how to do it. So they were pressing in different ways. They weren't necessarily going ultra tight on Yaya Torre. And, and the, the, the midfield player that was marking Yaya Torre, he was almost like covering ball through. He was covering the ball through to Aguero and covering the ball through to, to, to uh, Yaya Torre. So the ball that he had to hit was a long diagonal ball. And I said it the other night, Dave, Caballero's not good enough to, with his feet to be, to be hitting those sort of balls. He's not good enough to play. So you've signed a keeper in Claudio Bravo that's essentially signed to do that, but he's not been good enough with his hands. I don't think Caballero's actually good enough with his hands, but he's, he's certainly not good enough with his feet. So you say that what, what's the intention of playing that way? It's to try and get an overload further up the pitch. And usually it would be trying to get a silver or a De Bruyne after Monaco and, and play that high press on them. It just didn't work the other night. And it's not really worked when we've seen them do it this season. Even I've watched them in the Premier League. They've been caught out a few times this season playing against lesser sides than Monaco. So I I, I can't fathom, fathom it out. If he's got better players, we saw him do it at Barcelona where he had a, a Busquets that was sitting. He had a Xavi that could take the ball. He had a Iniesta. City don't have that. City don't have a player or players that are as good as, as Barcelona in, in keeping the ball. And that's his problems. But when it's not working within a game, he seems to have a stubborn streak in him that oh. allows him to refuse to change what's happening mid-game. Uh, 10, 20 minutes in, it was clear that City were not going to be able to play this game against Monaco, A, because of the personnel City had, and B, because of the pace and mobility that Monaco had. So from that point onwards, should he not just start going long with these kickouts and getting players in and around to win those second balls that was all he could talk about a month ago? Yeah, totally. I'm with you. And when, when Caballero, maybe another point just on when Caballero hit a long ball, Dave, when he hits these long balls then after Monaco have made the press, they're open and expansive then. So it's, it's, it's now all of, a, all of a sudden it becomes a percentage ball. If they don't win that, that ball, that initial ball that's played out, they're so open, it's two passes where they're straight at the back four and they're able to get a strike at goal. I'm with you totally that he doesn't adapt within a game when it isn't going right for him. And I just feel as though sometimes he can do that. We saw it a couple of times from Monaco. Monaco liked to play from the back at times, but they recognised that, that City were actually going to press them a little bit. So what Subasic did, who was in goal for Monaco, he just went long. And Falcao was that good in the air. He was able to flick a couple on, and he got in a couple of times directly just from a long ball from Subasic. So that, that, that's an option. You know, you, maybe, maybe playing Aguero, you might not be able to do that. But Aguero's not expected to win those balls. You said they're maybe second balls. You've got, well, that's you've the got thing. personnel. It's, you've got, yeah. it's not like the two Monaco central defenders. Aguero will still jump with them. They won't be able to cushion totally. a header down to an awaiting central midfield player. Exactly. And that's, that's, that's the point. You're spot on, Dave. That's where you've got 
people in positions. So you've got bodies in areas there where the ball's going to land. When that long ball's been hit when you're open, you've not got bodies in position to go and win second balls. And that was that was the ultimate problem of the night. Was, as we saw maybe with Monaco's first goal, tried to hit a long diagonal ball that was picked up from Monaco players. You, you, you cannot do that and play open and expansive and then try and hit those longer passes because you'll get caught out. OK, well, they've got a weekend off because they were used to be playing Manchester United at the Etihad in the Manchester Derby. That game's not on, obviously, because of the fact that United are playing Southampton in the EFL Cup final at Wembley. The draw has been made. We're recording this on a Friday afternoon, Kev. The draw has been made for the Europa League last 16. United have an, an eminently winnable tie, FC Rostov, but a very long yeah. trip to take. And it's only a few yes. days out from Jose Mourinho lamenting the fixture congestion that United are now going to face by getting through yesterday against Santiago on Wednesday. That's at least another two games that are added to their schedule. It's um, it's a trip they could have done without, I would suspect. And it's in and around the Chelsea FA Cup quarterfinal as well. Yeah, it is. And, and you look at the fixtures before it, Dave, as well, and around that they got Bournemouth just prior to that as well. They play Southampton on the Sunday, as, as you say. Um, I, I I don't know how that's going to fall with that Chelsea game as well. Perhaps the Southampton game will need to be postponed. I think it has actually been postponed. So as you say, though, Chelsea on that Monday, then going straight out from that Chelsea away game to play Rostov at home, that's an incre- that, that's that's a tricky f- round of fixtures that one, Dave. So to play those games that they've got around that Chelsea tie, because realistically, they're going to have to target the cup. They are actually targeting the cup this season against Chelsea. So. If and when Mourinho then makes changes for that Chelsea game, because realistically the Europa League's a much better um, a much better a trophy for, for Mourinho to win if he were to win a, a trophy in his first season, for them for, for him to be criticised, I wouldn't buy that particularly for this game because the scheduling will be very very difficult for him around uh, around that game. Yeah. So does it give him a little bit of an opt out on the Chelsea game that if he has to make a whole pile of changes and he can justify it by saying, look, we've got a 4,000 kilometre round trip uh, in two days time I had to choose and I've gone with the Europa League because <clears throat> it carries Champions League football with it I've had to sacrifice an FA Cup quarter final and if they get beaten then at Stamford Bridge well maybe he can bat away the criticism and, and people will have some sympathy for him Yeah I mean I think Rostov's actually the, the, the first legs away isn't it so that's actually before the Chelsea game but as you say Chelsea thrown in the middle of it but what he's done this season Dave he's not actually he's not actually um Played weakened teams. I thought he might have played a weakened team of the night, or certainly made a lot of changes for that Saint Etienne game. He's got he's, he's stuck with Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He's played Pogba. He's playing the the players that will be playing this Sunday in the in the EFL uh, Cup final. So he's continuously playing strong sides. He, I think he recognises the importance of winning a trophy this season. I think he's desperate to win one this season. If it can't be the Premier League, which does look unlikely for him, he's thinking in his head. I want, I want a cup. I definitely want a cup. Now, this could come this weekend, of course, against Southampton. But I think he might even want a better one than that. And I think he can really target these cups. So, from what he's done this season, it suggests to me that he'll probably try and go with a stronger side, or with a full-strength side, should I say, for that uh, for that Chelsea Cup game. But it will be difficult. If, if the tie's getting away from them in that first game away in Rostov, then they're obviously going to be chasing it then for, for the second leg. So it it depends. I think that, that first game in Rostov will probably dictate what team he'll play on that Monday night. Do you expect them to win at Wembley against Southampton? I do. I do. Of course I do. But Southampton this season, you know, they put Liverpool out, didn't they, through this competition. They've, they've, they've played well throughout. They've not been a, a pushover. Uh, but yes, the way that United have been playing and the consistency that, that uh, United have been showing 
I would probably say since maybe the end of September, October time, even though maybe the results weren't necessarily um, in, in keeping with the performances at times, I still think that, yeah, I think United will win it. And I mean, they, they, they were great last time out, weren't they, Southampton? They've had a bit of a break, big win against Sunderland last time out. But going into that game, they'd lost three on the bounce. They'd been beaten against Arsenal at home 5-0 or beat with changes in the cup. So they're not they're not coming into this game in the best of form. And perhaps that break might do them a favour, Southampton. But I do think United will have too much, Dave. They should have too much anyway. But it won't be plain sailing. The, the, the cup finals never are that easy, are they? Okay, well, I think that's pretty much covered everything. Kev, you're going to be backing off the ball tomorrow afternoon, chatting to Nathan, and that's when we'll preview all of the weekend games. Enjoy your weekend, and uh, we'll chat to you again very soon. Lovely, Dave. All the best, mate. Cheers, pal. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. What a stop! Chance for Ben! I mean, that sort of stuff, it's been, we're, be, we're bigger than that. That interview was just like the performance, flat. No. What, what do you want him to do? Just fall at Gabriel's feet crying? I mean, well, say something. We, we were doing what we'd done for 20 years, relaxing a nervous studio guest in the same way that you would in, in these conditions, um, and thought no more of it. Fire it up, fire it up. When we finally turn it over, make a beeline towards the boulder, have a drink, you've had enough, fire it up.